Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Hannah Crislow. Hello, Hannah. Hello, and this week, how our genes affect how well we fit into our trouser jeans, and clever chimps that are forcing scientists to reevaluate their view on what it means to be humans, and inflaming the brain. Is schizophrenia simply down to the immune system attacking the brain? Plus, can you make out what is being said? here. Probably not. But now listen to this. The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. And now listen to this again. Why does that happen? We'll find out later in the programme. Meanwhile, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can find us on Facebook. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. And first up, let's take a look at this week's science headlines. Hannah. So I've got a story all about genes that are involved in making people fat, or at least predisposing them to becoming fat. So it's been known for quite a few years now that this gene called FTO is involved in obesity. But until now, it's not really been understood exactly why. So Rachel Batterham and colleagues at University College London, published in the journal Clinical Investigation, work involved in FTO, genetically coding for obesity. So everybody has this FTO gene, but there's two different variations of it. There's an A-type and a T-type. And if you get the A-type from both your mum and your dad, then you are 1.7 times more likely to suffer from obesity down the line. So Rachel and her colleagues wanted to find out exactly why that is. So they took 20 men, half of the men carried the low-risk variation of this FTO gene, and half of the men carried this double A type that predisposed them towards obesity. And they looked at a particular hormone that's secreted in the stomach and also the pancreas in the body, and this hormone is called ghrelin. Basically, when ghrelin is produced by the stomach, it sends this message up to the brain saying, eat, I'm hungry, please can you start eating? So what the scientists did was they took these 20 men with the different FTO gene variations and they made them hungry. They forced fasted them and then they put them in an fMRI machine which was taking pictures of the brain, the oxygen levels rushing around the brain and then rather meanly they flashed up images of really nice looking food and also just normal food, so for example chips, cakes, bread and the regions of the brain involved in reward and 
pleasure lit up, signifying that these men wanted to eat the food. Then they repeated the study, firstly feeding the men so they were no longer hungry, and they flashed up the different types of wonderful-looking desserts and just boring bread and saw what areas of the brain were lighting up. Now, I don't know whether you've experienced this, Chris, but I certainly have. It's something called the dessert effect. So I may have eaten my full, had three courses of a sumptuous meal somewhere. I know I'm full, but suddenly I see cheese and these grapes and these biscuits being passed around. Creme brulee. <laughs> but I, mean, I keep on smelling this food and I can't help myself. I have to have another course. Now, some people have the willpower and seem to resist this extra course. So the scientists looked in this brain scanner, the fMRI machine, and saw that people that have this double A variation of the FTO gene didn't just succumb to the dessert effect when it was amazing puddings or amazing smelling cheese on offer. Any food was eliciting this, mm, yes, I want food response, which was quite unusual. So then they looked at the ghrelin levels and it turned out that the men that had the double A variation that were prone to obesity seemed to be still producing ghrelin after eating their full. So you've got two forms of this FTO gene, an AA form and the T form. If you've got a double dose of this A form, then instead of when you're full up, it's switching off ghrelin coming out of your stomach and making you therefore not feel hungry. It doesn't do that as well as if you've got the T form. And this means you're more likely to succumb to eating more or snacking even though you should really be feeling full? Well, the brain isn't receiving this change in ghrelin levels, and so you're still getting reward from images of food. So the scientists thought, OK, well, if we just tweak these double-A obesity predisposed people's ghrelin levels, surely we can stop their brain reacting to this food even when they're full in that way. Unfortunately, that didn't work. Why so not? they don't know. This study has given us a better insight into FTO role in the brain and in the stomach, but it hasn't come up with a treatment for people that have the double A variation yet. I reckon I've got the TT form, actually. I'm pretty good at resisting temptation after eating. Now, a massive story that's out this week is in the journal Science by researchers from Beijing. Hongkui Deng has a paper in which they describe a way to make stem cells from adult cells but by doing it using chemical reprogramming. Because a really big goal of stem cell biology is to be able to produce stem cells from a person's own adult cells so that you could then turn those stem cells into all kinds of different tissues and they would be genetically compatible with that person. The problem is that making these IPS-induced pluripotent stem cells at the moment involves adding genes to the adult cell and these genes are usually added using something like a modified virus and it can render the cell genetically unstable and more prone to then develop mutations or go out of control and produce things like cancers. So what this group did was to say, is there a way of finding just simple small molecules that would do the same job as these genes that we add and make these adult cells unspecialise themselves and go back to being like stem cells? So they did a scientific tour de force and they screened more than 10,000 molecules on cells in a dish and they had programmed these cells so they lit up green if the genes which we know are linked to that reprogramming and unspecialization event happening turn on. And they eventually found seven key chemicals which if added initially as a small group of four of them and then a few more afterwards to cells in culture could turn about 0.2% of adult tissue back 
into these very primitive stem cells that they call CIPSCs for chemically induced pluripotent stem cells. That's incredible. So they've come up with almost a recipe that we can add to any adult type of cell and wipe the slate clean so that it can genetically become any cell in the future. So what kind of implications has this potentially got for therapy? Well, the implications are pretty huge. The cells that they make via this route look like embryonic stem cells. They have the same biochemistry as embryonic stem cells and genetically they appear to be like embryonic stem cells and they even go one step further and they say let's take one of these cells we've made and add it to an, a mouse embryo. If that cell genuinely is pluripotent, it can turn into anything in the body, it should, if that mouse turns into an adult, have cells in any tissue in the mouse body containing the progeny of that cell. They do those experiments and they find adult mice that are healthy for as long as they want to keep them for, it would appear, which have got in any tissue in the mouse body cells derived from that embryonic stem cell that they have made. So this is absolutely huge. There are some questions outstanding, though. One, why is the efficiency so low? That's not ideal. We need to have bigger numbers there. How do these drugs actually work that they're adding to the cells? What are they doing? And also, there was an interesting study done last year in Australia by a researcher at UWA called Ryan Lister, who said when we make these cells, although the cells behave like they've been reprogrammed, if you look hard enough at what's called the epigenetics in the cell, these are markers added onto the genetic material, you can still find differences. They haven't done that experiment, so we need to know if this reprogramming really does produce embryonic stem cells, but it does look extremely encouraging and very exciting. So huge potential implications for that research then, but obviously very early days. Now, this week, a team of Toronto University scientists have won the Igor I Sikorsky competition by building a man-powered helicopter and flying their machine Atlas within a 10 metre by 10 metre box at the height of 3 metres for over a minute. If you haven't seen this in action yet, you can head to our website, thenakedscientist.com, to see a video of the record being made. But in the meantime, here's the quickfire science on the history of man-powered flight with Claudia Estathiou and Priya Crosby. Leonardo da Vinci drew a blueprint for a man-powered helicopter in the 15th century, driven by men running around in a circle although it was never built. Bikes are a running theme through all subsequent attempts at man-powered flight, as they are one of the most efficient methods of utilising human power. A lot of energy is needed to lift aircraft off the ground, and using the strong muscles in our legs is the best way to generate this power. In 1923, W. Frederick Gerhardt from Ohio flew his cycle plane at an altitude of two feet for just over six metres. Gerhardt's machine had seven wings stacked on top of each other and was 15 feet tall. In 1959, British industrialist Henry Kramer offered a £5,000 prize for the first human-powered aircraft that could complete a figure-of-eight course over a mile. Kramer later increased the prize money to £50,000 and opened the competition to applicants from overseas. Previously, it had only allowed British entries. The prize was finally won in 1977 by American engineer Dr Paul McCready with a machine named Gossamer Condor. The design was based on hang gliders with a bike unit suspended in the middle. McCready also designed the first man-powered plane to cross the English Channel. On the 12th of June 1979, the Gossamer Albatross successfully made the 22.2-mile trip in 2 hours and 49 minutes. 
Man-powered planes are easier to build than man-powered helicopters because you can increase their efficiency by lengthening the wing. This was more difficult on a helicopter because the blades have to move. The man-powered helicopter, which managed to fly for over a minute this week, has four blades, each with a radius of over 10 metres. That's roughly the length of three Mini Coopers. The whole helicopter is over 49 metres wide, but despite having such a large structure, the team used super light materials such as carbon fibre tubes and expanded polystyrene foam to ensure that the final helicopter weighed only 55 kilograms. Claudia Estafiu and Priya Crosby with this week's Quickfire Science, which you can also download separately as its own podcast from our website, nakedscientists.com forward slash quickfirescience. Thanks, Hannah. Lots of patients are on lots of drugs around the world, and some drugs work differently in some people compared with others. Now, part of that may be down to the fact we're all genetically different, and that means we're biochemically different too. But it turns out the bugs inside our guts could also be making a very dramatic difference to how different drugs work in each of us. There's a paper in Science this week by Harvard scientist Henry Hazer and his colleagues. What they've done is to look at the drug digoxin. It's a chemical which has its origins in foxgloves and it's a cardiac medicine. It controls how fast the heart beats and how hard. What they have done is to look in mice when they give them this drug and specifically, they're looking at certain bacteria which the mice have in their guts, which can break down digoxin. So they take a group of mice and they colonise them with a bug called Egatella lenta. And this bug can break down digoxin. But one of the mice groups, they give a high-protein diet. The other group, they give a low-protein diet to. And they look in the blood of these animals at how much of this drug digoxin is in the blood. And there is a 100% difference between the two groups. You could say, well, that's just down to the fact that the diet is different. But what they have found is that this bug, Egatella lenta, which can break down digoxin, if the mouse is fed a high-protein diet, and specifically a diet that's got a lot of the amino acid arginine in it, this suppresses the bug's breaking down of the digoxin molecule. If the mice are fed a low-protein diet with very low levels of arginine in it, this switches on genes in the bug, making it start to digest digoxin and break it down. So that means that the dose going into the bloodstream is much lower. And they make the point that actually we don't know what happens in people. People all eat different diets, and it's very likely that people eating different diets are going to cause the bugs in their intestines to change their metabolism. And this could well be changing the way those bugs metabolise the drugs those people are on. So it might be that we're prescribed particular diets alongside different medications in order to make sure that we get the optimum levels of treating whatever we're trying to treat. Well, actually, yeah, hit the nail on the head. They conclude their paper in Science by saying a comprehensive view of pharmacology includes the structure and activity of our resident microbial communities and a deeper understanding of their interactions with each other, with their host habitat, and here's your point, the nutritional milieu. So they're saying go away and test what is inside a person and how it is responding to the things they're eating. You may therefore have to tweak the drugs you give them to a certain extent to achieve optimal drug action. I think that's going to be a lot of big studies there. So I've got a paper that's been published this month all about episodic memory. So my first episodic memory was when I was three, my big sister shoved a dried pee up my nose. So mum and dad had to race me to hospital. And I really clearly, or I think I'm clearly remembering, sitting in the doctor's chair and having this scalpel, this tool, 
being used to try and tweak the stride P out of my nose. Did it make it into your brain? It didn't make it into my brain, but it was pretty far up. So since this this first memory, early memory of mine, I've kind of associated like tweezers and scalpels with peas and surgery and kind of healing people. And I've also had a great fondness for mushy peas. So this is apparently something called episodic memory. So where, when and why. And it's always been thought previously that it's only humans that can exhibit such long-term episodic memory. So scientists publishing in the Journal of Current Biology has published a quite long-term study looking over three years at how chimpanzees and orangutans can remember distant past events. I bet they didn't push peas up their noses, though. They didn't push peas up their noses, no. Instead, what they did was they took the orangutans and the chimpanzees and they put them in kind of almost like a first-floor flat with different rooms in it and they went and hid different boxes that contained different tools and tempting them on a shelf very high up was their favourite kind of food, a nice banana and the chimpanzees and the orangutans couldn't reach this banana unless they got the tool from a hidden box within one of these rooms in the flat and then used that as a, a reach in order to yank down the banana so the researcher took the primates into the room and showed them the boxes once. They remembered which box they had to open in order to get the right tool, in order to yank down the banana, in order to get their reward. And then the researcher, three years later, took them back into the room. They'd actually been in this room since, but not with this particular task. And within five seconds, the primates quickly went, found the right box and did the same trick and got their banana and went, yum, 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 that's nice. These are quite long-lived creatures, aren't they? And we have good, lifelong memories. And if it is their favourite treat, it would have made a big impression on them, being able to retrieve it. So I'm not actually that surprised that they would remember that. Yeah, scientists have long thought that this type of long-term episodic memory is what makes us humans unique. But there's a lot of evidence that now seems to be flooding in that's forcing scientists to re-evaluate this. So, for example, Nicola Clayton, who works here in Cambridge at the Department of Psychology, has been working with the scrub jay, so a type of corvid, a bird. And um, she's found that over a period of days, they can do similar tasks as well. She hasn't looked at longer periods, but it seems as though other types of species do have this longish-term episodic memory as well. So it's really quashing some scientists' view of what it is to be human. Oh, dear. But not too much, oh, dear. We're all one big happy animal family. You can find out more information, including the references to the papers that uh, Hannah and I have been discussing, on our website. That's at nakedscientists.com slash news. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Hannah Critchlow, and Chris Smith. This week, a paper out in Science Translational Medicine revealed a new intelligent surgical device which, as well as cutting through tissue, can actually chemically analyse the tissue it's cutting through to help to distinguish between healthy and potentially cancerous cells. To find out how it works, we're joined by one of the team members from Imperial College, and that's Zoltan Takach. Hello, Zoltan. Hello. How does this, what you're calling the eye knife, the intelligent knife, how does it work? It is actually a hybrid instrument. This is a combination of a surgical dissection device, which is actually quite an old surgical device called electrosurgery. It's been uh, used since 1925, I believe. So it's a combination of electrosurgery with an analytical device called uh, mass spectrometry. 
So um, we are taking uh, the surgical dissection tool and using the uh, byproduct of the surgical dissection tool to identify what kind of tissue the surgical dissection tool is cutting through. When one does electrosurgery, effectively you're using an electric current. It generates a little spark at the tissue interface, doesn't it? And that vaporises the tissue. And having done this, I can testify to the smell that comes off. There is a lot of smoke. Yeah. <laughs> You're presumably drawing off some of that smoke and then feeding it into your mass spectrometer to sniff the smoke and see what's in it. Exactly. The electrosurgical device produces this smoke, this uh, aerosol. And we realise that this smoke doesn't only uh, contain uh, the tissue debris and the things like that, but it also contains ionised molecules, so molecules with electric charge. And without doing too much to this aerosol, we can introduce it into a mass spectrometer and uh, analyze the charged molecules and get a chemical fingerprint of the tissue which is being dissected. In other words, when you blast apart the cells with the electrical cutting tool, effectively you're also releasing as a vapour all of the chemicals in those cells. And exactly. I suppose the premise here is... If a cancer cell has a different biochemical milieu going on inside it compared with a non-cancer cell, can you tell them apart? So the cancer cells have a markedly different chemical signature and that's what we use to identify them. What sort of resolution and how would this be useful for a surgeon? Resolution-wise, it always depends on the hand of the surgeons. If you look at the instrumental resolution, we can actually look at micrograms of tissue using this method. Of course, surgeons cannot really work with a micrometer precision. I would say using a handheld device, the spatial resolution is somewhere around a millimeter, but it really depends on who is holding this device. So would one apply this in the sense that a surgeon has operated on a cancer? The surgeon thinks that he or she has got all of the tumour out. But by running the device around the margin of the tumour and sniffing that smoke that's coming off, this will tell if there's still residual cancer tissue there or if they're into healthy tissue. One thing is when a surgeon is cutting around the tumour and he or she assumes that uh, all the dissection line is lead in healthy tissue, the device would cut through tumor or cancer environment, so something which is not cancer but really close to the tumor, then the device can give a warning signal. The identification result on the screen, we have actually a very simple color coding. It can turn red and tell the surgeon that maybe you want to remove a little bit more tissue here because you are getting too close to the tumor. But this is one type of application. Another type of application would be the identification of unknowns. Fairly often uh, happens that there are suspicious, unidentified uh, tissue features around the tumor. And it's really hard to tell just by the naked eye whether these are proximal metastases uh, of the tumor or these are just something else. And in these cases, it is a very important thing to decide because if it is a metastatic disease, then there is not too much hope for a curative uh, intervention. If it's not metastasized uh, yet, then there is a good chance to cure the disease. And at that point, when the patient is uh, opened up, then surgeon can see uh, what's around, 
and has to make a decision which way to go. Or in our case, one can just zap a little bit of the suspicious tissue, some hardly visible amount, and get an answer immediately. Now, when one does a resection, the pieces of whatever has been taken away go off to the histopathology laboratory and a pathologist looks down a microscope to see if they can see where the unhealthy tissue stops and the healthy tissue starts to gauge this so-called resection margin. Could the histopathologist, instead of relying on his or her eye and a microscope, could they use your tool to ask, does this thing have clear margins? Uh, Where does the tissue become unhealthy again? Actually, you pointed out a very important feature here. This uh, intelligent surgical device is a part of a much bigger story. And this much bigger story is about paradigm change in histologies. What uh, we are proposing here, and not only uh, we, but also a number of other groups all around the planet, is to change the basic definitions of tissues from a morphological basis to a chemical basis. In that sense, a histopathologist can use not necessarily this surgical device, but can use similar tools with higher spatial resolution, which we generally call imaging mass spectrometry for the identification of tissues, histological sections. So that's, again, an area which we've been uh, heavily working on, but uh, that's a little bit different uh, from the uh, current uh, study. It's all exciting stuff. Sultan Tekach from Imperial College in London, thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Hannah Critchlow. On to our main topic for the show this week now, and we'll be taking a look at a mental disorder which affects about one in every 100 people worldwide, and that's schizophrenia. But what is this condition, and what do people who have it experience? My name's Louise. I live in Camden near the Royal Free. I'm 54, and um, I was diagnosed with schizophrenia about 10 years ago. I suffered with um, hearing voices quite a lot to the extent where I used to self-harm. What did you hear, and what sorts of things did they say to you? They were kind of more like controlling voices, like if I wanted to go just say out shopping they'd tell me not to go out shopping or like if I had choices to make in my life like you know what I would buy or any kind of choice really they'd tell me what to do they disrupted my thoughts so that I just couldn't concentrate so I used to think that the voices were coming from the traffic people in the traffic were controlling me I used to like lose control sometimes and go out shouting at the traffic and was there more than one you say voices you were presumably hearing many voices Yeah, it was like, you know, every single car had something to say to me. Everybody that had a car was just trying to control my thoughts. And were these voices coming from outside your head or were they inside your head? Yeah, they were coming from outside, yeah. Could anyone else hear them? No, no. Why didn't you just tell the voices to go away and leave you alone? Yeah, I found that really difficult to do because I just didn't feel like I had the power to do that. They seemed to have more power than I did. So what would they do to you if you'd said, leave me alone? Well, I used to think like they put pains on my body and things like that. And did they ever do anything to you? Well, I did used to get pains in my body because that was like another reason for me going back into counselling because I thought that the voices were doing it to me. Thank you very much to Louise for sharing her experiences with us. 
And we're now joined with Professor Paul Fletcher, who's based at the Department of Psychiatry at Cambridge University, where he works on schizophrenia. So, Paul, the experiences that Louise just explained, are they typical for people that have schizophrenia? Well, one might argue that there's no absolutely typical set of symptoms, but as far as it goes, really what Louise is describing, hearing the voices, feeling very persecuted, could be conceived of as typical of schizophrenia. I mean, schizophrenia itself is a very broad description of a serious mental disorder. It, it means a splitting of the mind, which is not, as some people have thought, a splitting of the personality, a sort of Jekyll and Hyde. It really refers to sort of fragmentation of mental processes so that somebody has a great deal of difficulty in interacting cohesively with the world. Typically, the symptoms are divided into three broad types, and a lot of what Louise was describing would be the first of these, the so-called psychosis, which refers to being, if you like, out of contact with objective reality. So somebody might experience often terrifying beliefs about being controlled or persecuted, just as Louise described. Those beliefs are called delusions. People may also experience what are called hallucinations, which are the perception of events or objects that are not objectively there. Now, Louise was describing them as, as hearing voices, but people also experience being touched by things or sometimes seeing things that aren't there. But she also um, described something that probably falls into another category within the symptoms of schizophrenia, which is a sort of cognitive problems that people have, feeling of being fragmented and also having difficulties with things like their attention and their memory, difficulty in making sense of the world. And then there's a third group of symptoms, which we often refer to as the negative symptoms, which refer to difficulties in motivation and action, a tendency to disengage from the world personally, emotionally, socially and physically. And do we know what's going on in the brain to give rise to this vast myriad of symptoms that are associated with schizophrenia then? No, we don't know the cause of schizophrenia. It really is a, a broad term for what may well be a group of sub-syndromes which have a, a sort of common presentation such as hallucinations but may actually have underlying different causes. And one avenue for researching the brain basis for schizophrenia is to use drugs that alter perception of reality. And I believe this is what you're studying here in Cambridge. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, the idea of a drug model of an illness like that is not so much that you're trying to create that illness in a healthy person who wouldn't otherwise have it. What you're trying to do is make a very specific manipulation of their brain chemistry, temporarily, of course, in order to produce some of the perceptual changes that are like those in the illness. So in that sense, what you've got is a very highly controlled experimental situation in which you can induce things like hallucinations in healthy people and observe how their brain changes, things like that. And what kind of chemicals are you using to induce these changes? Well, a number of different drugs have been used in the past to model schizophrenia from uh, amphetamines to LSD. The drug that I've been very interested in is one that acts on a particular type of receptor in the brain called the NMDA receptor and that drug is ketamine. What kind of thing happens to people when ketamine is administered? Well initially people experience perceptual disturbances. Things can seem quite vivid. Things can seem strangely meaningful. So for example a coffee cup that's sitting on a table might somehow seem to be much more significant to them at that time. So people describe those phenomena, and those are very similar to what a number of people describe in early schizophrenia, this sense of changing importance of things. 
And I think you've got uh, an audio example of how we can change, we can tweak our perception. Most of us feel that we experience the world as though we're sort of passively receiving our sensory input. But actually, if we did that, we would be dysfunctional because there is so much sensory input, so much of it is noisy, so much of it is ambiguous, that we can't actually do anything unless our mind essentially takes some shortcuts. So our brain is constantly being bombarded by all this information coming in through all our senses and we have to make assumptions and predictions based on our prior experiences. That's exactly right. And this is what I study under ketamine. So an example of that would be in hearing. We have a sense that we hear words very clearly, but actually a lot of the time we're superimposing what we think should be there onto it. And so we've got an example here, which is from Matt Davis's group in in Cambridge. So that, to most people hearing it for the first time, is rather like ugly clockwork birdsong. However, if you change their experience slightly by playing another clip now... The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. What they now have is a different prior experience. So now if they hear the first clip again, they they should have a a, a changed experience of it. So they should now be able to understand that. The cadence seems quite similar from the first noisy track where I didn't hear that sentence before. Yeah, it's exactly the same track. What that tells you is that your prior experience is superimposing itself onto a highly noisy stimulus in order to make sense of that. And that's great. That's what we should be doing all the time. But, of course, what it also means is that your brain is creating a world. And if you're creating sensations and perceptions, what you're essentially doing under normal circumstances is hallucinating. This balance is maintained in a very useful way in the healthy individual. But if it's shifted then it may well be that you hallucinate in a very non-useful way, in a way that Louise described, Mm. experiencing very unpleasant voices telling you what to do and controlling you. Thank you. So that's Paul Fletcher from Cambridge University. So ketamine will give you a distorted reality of your world by affecting the NMDA receptors in your brain. And later in the show, we'll be returning to these receptors to discuss a new treatment for people just diagnosed with schizophrenia, firefighting against their inflamed brain using immune therapy. But first... Schizophrenia is normally treated with medicines like antipsychotics in combination with talking therapies like cognitive behavioural therapy, and this aims to help patients rationalise their hallucinations. But since almost half of people with schizophrenia attempt suicide at some time in their lifetime, the search is on for more effective treatments. Julian Leff from the Institute of Psychiatry in London is with us, and he's been exploring just one of these avenues. Hello, Julian. Hello. Tell us about your strategy, which involves cartoon avatars on computers. Well, we know that um, most patients who hear these voices, like Louise, find it very difficult to confront them, partly because the voices are quite vicious, and they will say, you know, if you start talking to me, I will harm you or your family. Um, It's very frightening. And so they recede into the background and don't, don't tackle them. But it turns out that... A few people who are able to start a dialogue with the voices, who overcome that fear, actually feel much more in control. And so that was the start point from my work trying to enable the patient to actually create a dialogue with this invisible entity. No one can see it, not even the patient, but they do have some idea of who it is. So with my colleagues, two speech scientists, as Geoffrey Williams and Mark Huckvale, we developed a computerised program that enabled the patient to choose the face that they thought belonged to the person talking to them and also the voice 
which was um, actually my voice as a therapist morphed into a variety of forms and they chose the one that was closest to the voice they heard and then that was all put together in a program so that you had the face and the voice and the lips of the face were synchronised uh, with the voice. And you would, what, go and hide somewhere else so that you could communicate with them as though you were that avatar on that screen that they were seeing? That's right, yes. The patient would be in one room looking at a monitor on which their avatar appeared, the avatar they'd created. I'd be in another room, which they couldn't see, they didn't know I was there, and I would, I could speak in two different ways. I could speak through the avatar with my morphed voice and be the horrible, persecutory avatar, and then I could switch in a second to being the therapist speaking in my own voice by just having a, a click on a screen one way or the other. So I would say to the patient, for example, uh, you're horrible, you don't deserve to live, punch yourself in the face. And then immediately I would switch to my own voice and say, don't listen to the avatar. It's, it's horrible. It's, it's saying lie, telling you lies. You've got to tell the avatar to go away and leave you alone. Did they believe you? Did they engage with this avatar? Out of the 16 patients who received this therapy, only two didn't respond to the avatar as though it was a real representation of the voice they heard. When only six sessions were given to each patient, out of the 16, 14 of them accepted that this was the voice that they heard um, outside of the experimental session. And how do you evolve what the voice says to the patient over the course of the six sessions? You presumably don't persecute them all the way through the treatment course. No, not at all. The, the idea was, first of all, to give the patient the sense that they could overcome the avatar and also the avatar changes over the course of the six sessions from being persecutory and horrible and vicious to actually becoming friendly and offering to help the patient. So there's a real sea change in the avatar's persona and at the same time the avatar agrees not to torment the patient anymore and to leave the patient in peace. And does it work? <laughs> That's the extraordinary thing. I was quite surprised by how well it did work. They were able to stand up to the, the voices, as opposed to the avatar, uh, when they were out in the real world. And furthermore, they were able to feel that they were controlling the avatar. And one patient said to me, they've stopped talking to me because they know I will answer them back. So it does appear that it sort of hands control to the patient without ever having to dissuade them that the voices they hear aren't real, because that's the big thing that I think Louise displays, isn't it? That she remains absolutely convinced that these are sounds coming from outside her head that are a third party. You're absolutely right about that. And um, the, the, one of the issues in this is that I take what the patients say at face value. I don't say, no, this is nonsense, this is your imagination. I say, yes, you are hearing these voices. I, now I can hear them. Because you've created the avatar, I can both hear and see the person who's persecuting you. And that validates the patient's experience so they no longer feel freakish. I'm sharing their experience with them. What fraction of the 16 patients got some degree of improvement through doing this? Virtually all of them, not the two who didn't uh, recognise that the avatar was the voice. They, they didn't have any success at all. But the other 14 improved in various ways. There were highly significant reductions in what they perceived as the frequency and intensity of the voices. And there was also um, a decrease, a significant decrease, in the um, 
persecutory nature of the voice, the fact that it was malevolent, dropped very considerably. And three of the patients, to my utter astonishment, stopped hearing the voice altogether. Is there any possibility that this could represent a subgroup of people with schizophrenia? Were they a certain select group of individuals who had a certain manifestation of the disorder? Or do you think this treatment could generalise to people with schizophrenia at large and be a very effective, very cheap way to intervene? All the patients that I admitted to my trial had to have had voices for at least six months that had not responded to the adequate doses of medication. And in fact, all the patients but two were on, still on their medication. And the three people who lost the voice, one had been uh, hearing the voice for 16 years, another one for 13 years, and another for three and a half years. And all of them lost the voice during the course of the therapy. And three months after the therapy had been completed, the voices were still absent. But there were other patients in the trial who couldn't tolerate the experimental situation. They couldn't bear to hear the avatar saying these horrible things to them and they dropped out. And others couldn't, couldn't concentrate on the avatar because they were hearing multiple voices that were talking very loudly over the avatar. So it clearly will not work for everybody. It works best for people who hear one dominant voice. If there are two or three voices, I ask the patient, which one would you most like to be rid of? And then we concentrate on that one voice, uh, as we did with, um, with Louise. I mean, she was hearing voices from all over the place. But nevertheless, concentrating on one voice and getting her to feel in control of that one voice actually generalised to her not hearing those voices anymore. Julian Leff, thank you very much. That's Julian Leff from the Institute of Psychiatry in London. Hannah. So there seems to be new computer animation therapies for schizophrenia, but could there also be a biological treatment that could tackle the underlying causes of the disorder? Could some cases of schizophrenia simply be down to the immune system attacking the brain? This is exactly what Oxford University's psychiatrist Belinda Lennox works on. Hi there, Belinda. Hi, Hannah. Can you tell us a little bit about this hypothesis that some cases of schizophrenia could be down to the immune system getting into the brain and attacking bits of the brain? The story really starts in the world of neurology and neuro-oncology in particular. So in the last 10 years or so, there have been an increasing number of cases of catastrophic encephalitis, a brain inflammation, have been found to have antibodies that are attacking parts of their brain. By identifying these antibodies and by removing the antibodies, these patients who were often critically unwell are dramatically improved and sometimes cured. But it was recognised right from the first descriptions of these patients with encephalitis that they actually presented with symptoms of psychosis. So our research was taking this work forward and saying, well, would there be some patients with a more circumscribed psychiatric presentation to their illness also with these antibodies? And therefore, as an extension, maybe there are some cases that we can actually treat the psychosis as well. So Belinda, this sounds very exciting that you could simply remove psychosis, so delusions and hallucinations. So have you done any clinical trials with patients with schizophrenia rather than this brain inflammation encephalitis? Well, the first thing we did was to screen some patients presenting with a first experience of psychosis just to see whether we could find any of these antibodies 
disease in those patients. And we found in our initial 47 patients, we found three patients that were positive for these antibodies, so just over 6%. But where are these antibodies actually coming from, from this 6% of the patient cohort that you were looking at? We don't know. When we identified these patients, we brought them back and gave them a good looking over with um, neurologist colleagues as well, because our first thought was actually, have we misdiagnosed these patients? Did they actually have encephalitis? Did we miss something? But on screening, we couldn't find anything that distinguished them in particular. They'd all received diagnoses of schizophrenia in the time that they'd been followed up under psychiatric services. And we looked to see if there's any reason for them producing these antibodies, whether there was a tumour that might be associated with them, but we couldn't find any particular reason. So our assumption is that it's an autoimmune disorder, that it's the body reacting against some external trigger that we don't know what that is. So which parts of the brain are these antibodies actually attacking? The most common antibody that we found is the antibody against the NMDA receptor, which is a particular interest, as Paul was describing, because there's an association from many different directions with disturbance of the NMDA receptor and schizophrenia. So ketamine kind of blocks these NMDA receptors in the brain and then induces these hallucination, delusion experiences. And then also some patients with schizophrenia have actually got their immune system attacking these NMDA receptors as well and kind of degrading them. So in that case, can you almost clean the immune system of these patients with schizophrenia to get rid of their symptoms of psychosis? Have you come up with a new treatment? That's the really exciting prospect. So since our initial cohort description, we've been screening patients as they come through the first episode psychosis service. And when we've identified patients with these antibodies, we've been treating them with immunotherapy as though they had an encephalitis with these antibodies. And that involves a very different set of treatments to the ones that we're used to in schizophrenia. So we treat people with steroids, with plasma exchange, where they come and have their blood filtered, basically to filter out the antibodies from their blood. Or we treat them with intravenous immunoglobulins, which directly get rid of the the antibodies in their system. And what kind of success rate are you getting with this immunotherapy treatment? I'm cautious to claim any great results because it hasn't been done in a randomised control way. But we have treated about 20 patients now and each patient has improved with their psychiatric symptoms so far. So how long have they got to stay in hospital for and have they got to continue having this immunotherapy? We're treating them again as with other patients with encephalitis. So we give them a course of intravenous immunoglobulins over sort of three to five days. We give them three days of very high dose steroids. And then we continue treatment with either steroids or a steroid sparing immune suppressant. So again, very sort of different drugs to those that we're used to in psychiatry. And we follow people up for at least a couple of years to make sure that they stay well. I mean, other disorders of the brain, like, for example, dementia or Alzheimer's, could they possibly be implicated in this immune system attacking the brain as well? There are some research groups that have also been looking at this area. There's got to be some caution in that in older people, or particularly if there is other sort of known brain pathology going on, you quite often find a lot of antibodies being produced against all sorts of targets. So actually separating out not clinically relevant antibodies is quite a task. So there have been these NMDA receptor antibodies described, for instance, in cases of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease and in some cases of 
sort of rapid dementing illnesses where it's quite difficult to untangle what's causing what. So I suppose there's lots of work still required. Thank you. So that was Belinda Lennox from Oxford University who's describing her work on a new way of treating schizophrenia and even other types of psychiatric disorders as well by clearing the immune system. And if you want to hear a personal account of the inflamed brain, then New York Times journalist Susanna Capelain has recently written a book called Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness about her experience with psychosis and obliterating it with the immune treatment that Belinda just described. All amazing, fascinating stuff. Well, it's time for a change of gear and to open our mailbag for the week. What have we got in, Hannah? Well, I think, Chris, this is a question for you. Don McKenzie has been in touch saying, why would a mirror begin to magnify things? So apparently he's got a small handheld mirror, which him and his wife have had for 10 years. And one day his wife used it and it suddenly magnifies like a shaving mirror. A few days later, they picked up the mirror and it was back to normal. Is there an explanation for this change in magnification of mirrors or was that just all in his head? No, I think it probably is real. I suspect what has happened is that the mirror, which is mounted on a a back plate, it's usually a reflective layer mounted on some kind of back plate, I suspect that probably heat or cold has caused the mirror to change its shape very subtly and it's become like those fun mirrors that you see at the fairground, you know, the ones which are ripply shapes and they make your body have all kinds of funny proportions. Effectively, if the mirror becomes slightly curved, slightly concave, then it will have the effect of focusing the light, which is coming back to you almost like a lens, and the light will then begin to spread out again on its way to your eye, making what you see in the mirror look bigger than it really is. That probably happened one day, and then the next day the mirror had reverted to its normal shape again, perhaps when it cooled down or warmed up, and uh, that's why it went back to normal. Sound plausible to you? That sounds very plausible. So you could play with temperatures and make your head kind of expand and throb out and then turn into a pinhead? Perhaps. Let's turn to this item from Joel, who wants to know, Hannah, why he can't stay awake in lectures. He says, why am I not able to stay awake during my lectures at university? I find them riveting most of the time, and there's not much else I'd rather be doing than listening to my professors talk about receptor theory or neurophysiology. Do you think he's being slightly uh, sarcastic? I don't know. He says, the same thing as when I'm driving at night, my eyelids droop and I begin to fall into micro-sleeps just before putting my head down on the bench and sleeping, but obviously not while driving. It's not so much sleep deprivation either. I get enough sleep every night unless there's an assignment to do in the morning. Lots of people I've spoken to have the same experiences. Long, inactive periods leave them unable to stay awake. Why is this, guys? And he goes on to say he loves the show. Well, Joel, I think part of the reason is that lecture theatres generally seem to be quite dark. So we know that blue light actually stimulates your brain and your body to wake up. It does this by affecting this little region in your brain that's called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. It's this little region that's about the size of a pinhead. And if you kind of put a pencil, I don't suggest you do this at home, but if you put a pencil up your nose, basically you'd get to the suprachiasmatic nuclei. There's about 20,000 nerve cells there, and they're the kind of master body clock in your in your body and your brain it regulates your sleep-wake cycle and blue light affects these suprachiasmatic nuclei to wake you up and uh, in dark lecture theatres there's not much blue light going on so maybe he could bring in a blue wavelength rich light there's also other little tricks to keep yourself awake so giving yourself extra stimulation in other ways so for example if you're driving in a car maybe turn the radio on maybe listen to the naked scientist to get some extra stimulation so that your your brain's kind of awake and thinking and uh, maybe open the window to get some air rushing in and to stimulate your somatosensory cortex with the with the breeze so basically what you're saying is that a room which is regardless of what's being presented warm quiet 
dark. They're all sorts of features similar to your bedroom, probably, and so it does lull you into a fairly snoozy state. Zapping ourselves awake with another question now. So this one has come in from Leaded One. He says, why can we see the outer gas giant planets? So how come they reflect light? So, for example, when we look through a telescope, we can see Saturn's ring and Uranus. How come that happens? Uh, I think what he's getting at is why should something which is a giant ball of gas reflect light? The reason the planets reflect light is that light is shining on them from the sun and that they have an atmosphere and that atmosphere has particles in it and those particles, in the same way that snow and tiny ice crystals will reflect light, that bounces light back off and it comes back towards your eye. And things like Saturn have a very dense atmosphere. They're very big bodies and so they have an atmosphere which is extremely dense and they have things like ammonia in their atmosphere which forms tiny crystals and those tiny crystals do actually have a very reflective surface and so the albedo, the reflection of these gas giants is really quite high. It's maybe 59-60% of the light that goes onto them comes straight back at you. So they do actually appear quite bright. And the fact is they're a tiny dot in the sky so all that light that is coming back is centred on one tiny little speck in the sky so it makes it look much brighter than it, it really actually is. We're back here on Earth. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Hannah Critchlow and finally Hannah has been turning things on their head for our question of the week. This week, we go head over heels to get to grips with this. Hello, Naked Scientist. Miriam, County Throne, Northern Ireland. I am approaching the end of my third trimester. The baby has got itself at long last in the right position, though this is where my question lies. An unborn baby's head points downwards in preparation for the birth and can be like that for many, many weeks. If I hung upside down for that long, all my blood would be swimming around my brain and I would be a bit dead. So how come an unborn baby is okay? So how does a baby withstand the prolonged headstand in the womb? To test the effects of gravity on an adult, we asked Claudia F. Staffiu to do a headstand. OK, so I'm just going to get into position now. <laughs> Your face is starting to get a little bit red there. Yeah, I can definitely feel all the blood rushing to my head. Feels a little bit odd. A baby or foetus in the womb can be upside down for a month or so. Here's Dr Matthew Mason, physiology lecturer at Cambridge University, for his hypothesis. The foetus is much smaller than an adult. And it turns out that the pressure at the bottom of any column of liquid, and that could be the blood supply, is higher than the pressure at the top by an amount given by rho gh. Rho is density. G is the acceleration due to gravity, and H is the height. The higher the height of the liquid column, the greater the pressure at the bottom relative to the top. Now, if you assume that an adult woman is, let's say, 160 centimetres tall, and if you imagine that a foetus is only 20 centimetres from top to bottom, then that means that uh, the adult is maybe eight times higher than the foetus, and that means that the pressure difference between the blood at your feet and the blood at your head is eight times greater in the adult than it is in the foetus. That's purely due to the height difference that they're going to have a much smaller problem with being upside down than we are. So now back to a fully grown Claudia to find out how she's faring. Uh, all right, a little bit lightheaded. A lot of pressure on the top of my scalp doing that for a while. So a small baby has a much lower pressure on its upside down head. 
As well as this, babies have amniotic fluid surrounding them. This external water pressure helps to balance out the pressure difference that we experience between our head and our feet in the outside world. And lastly, the body has sensors by the heart and also the head to regulate pressure, altering blood vessel diameters to compensate and act as a buffer as both adults and babies in the womb move around. Sticking with the head, we next bite into this. I'm Steve from Hampshire. I was in the car one day with my daughter and we were playing the see how long you can keep a sweet in your mouth without chewing it game. I gave up after a minute and started chewing my sweet. And it got me thinking, what is worse for your teeth? Sucking a sweet for ages until it goes to nothing? Or crunching it straight away and having that sugary goo stuck in all the nooks and crannies of your teeth doing all the nasty stuff that sweets do? So, sucking sweets for a long time or crunching them to smithereens? Which one is best for your dental health? Let us know what you think. You can send us your thoughts to studio at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page or you can join in the live debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow, that's it for this week. Thank you to Paul Fletcher, Julian Leff and Belinda Lennox. To Hannah Critchlow for joining me and to Kate Lamble for producing this week's show. Next time we're turning pro because we're looking at the science revolutionising sport. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.